Hey guys, I'm always getting asked about my podcast and and how do you get to make it and you know what tools are you using to get online and get your ideas out there? Well, let me tell you, if you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's by far the easiest way to make a podcast today. Everything you need is all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then hosting, which is kind of actually technically relatively complicated. They do all of that stuff and distribute all that stuff. Guess what? For F-R-E-E, they do all of that. It's uh, Spotify. You'll see your podcast show up on Apple, on Stitcher, all these great platforms. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, did I mention that it's free? So here's how you do it. You go to the Anchor app. Go to the App Store. Just put in Anchor. Or you can go to the anchor.fm and you can get started right away. Thanks to our sponsor, Anchor. Hey, hey, here we are. Whoa, it is. Wow. Hope you're having a great day. Here we are. It's Pierre Hulsebus. That's right. We're back. And we're back. We're doing a lot of stuff uh, this week and I wanted to get you all hooked up and hacking away. All righty. Let's sit down and relax. My name is uh, Pierre Hulsebus, and you're sitting here with me having a cup of joe in our little um, cafe. We're going we're gonna to be in a London cafe today. And so I guess what you're hearing in the background there is our little, uh, <laughs> little plates and stuff. Anyways, I hope you're having an awesome day. Uh, my name is uh, Pierre Hulsebus, and uh, welcome to the podcast. This is uh, our podcast number, I believe, eight podcast number eight it is hustle is the hack and i i hope you're a hacker in this uh in this hustle world and uh so what we're gonna what are and who are so who am i well man i'm a 30 plus year technology sales expert i've been working in technology sales for a long time going all the way back to the late 80s and uh been involved in sales and technical sales for that entire time and uh, today, I um, I work for one of the largest uh, companies in the world uh, that uh, sells technology. So um, so hopefully you'll be able to enjoy our time together as I impart a couple things to you. Primarily, I got three basic goals here. One of them is just to have a, an awesome time and to feel like you walked away and learned something today. And uh, what we're going to learn is lots of different things. We have different uh, things that we get to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, customer um, retention today. That's a, an exciting thing, why customer retention is so important. And we're going to just continue our our journey down the ways to improve customer retention. So that's going to be part of our time together. We also have the awesome and incredible stack of stuff, which is a just an ongoing um, from the mind of Pierre 
what uh, taking that growth mindset, applying it to things that are out there in the market, things that are new and different and changing, and how you can help leverage uh, that change that's coming in the market for the best for your organization, how you can prepare for a changing world and uh, be be proactive in there and be, be looking at what's going ahead. And I found that to be such a key insight, um, insightful way to grow your business. Now, so what is your business? Well, if you're a, a regular listener, um, you're going to be in the area of, um, hey, I'm brand new to selling. I'm just out of college. I'm just starting the sales game. So I want to know a little bit about how to be effective. I want to learn some of the tricks of the trade, like what are some of the ways that we can do things. Um, if you are um, starting a small business or own a business or starting up a company, you have a great idea and a great product, but you know what? you got to sell some stuff. So you need to learn some general sales skills and approaches, and we'll talk about that. And so that's the whole point of our exercise. So um, sit back and relax, and we are going to... Um, Get right into it. So, all right, all right, all right. So, let's get right into it today. We are going to get right into it. All right. So, uh, we have been, let's just start off with some of the stack of stuff things that we've been talking about. And, uh, so where is the stack of stuff? What is the stack of stuff? Well, what you need to do is you need to go to hustleisthehack.com. That's my awesome personal website. And what are you going to find there? You're going to find a bunch of different cool things. One of them is going to be called the stack of stuff. And the stack of stuff is a link out to basically a curated library of awesome things that are happening out in the world today. And, and what is, uh, you know, just different things, different, uh, different, um, let's just call them newsworthy items for, from our view. And uh, I believe a lot of them point to changes that are happening overall in the industry. Now, so the first thing I want to um, talk about is uh, John Stossel. John Stossel has a great um, uh, YouTube channel. If you liked him on 2020, he used to be on 2020. Now he's on YouTube, and um, he has a, has a really good channel for that. And um, one of the and, and um, you know uh, it can sometimes get a little political, um, and uh, some people don't like that. And I can appreciate people not liking politics, and so I'm trying to stay a little out of politics on this. But um, this one definitely shows a business model, um, an insightful business model that he talks about. And uh, so we're gonna let's uh, let's just uh, listen to it just for a sec as he talks a little bit about some of the things that uh, that's on the top of his mind. It's called "Don't Ask Permission." SpaceX launch almost didn't happen. Minutes before the government told SpaceX the launch would violate your license. Faster and faster, Starship's picking up speed here. But SpaceX launched anyway. SpaceX got away with it. And later, the government actually bragged about relaxing rules. The Federal Aviation Administration is making one giant leap for paperwork relief. Relief? No. Just a few months later, hold, hold, hold. they halted another launch because an aircraft was in the keep-out zone. But is that even a reasonable rule? Elon Musk, who runs SpaceX, called that zone unreasonably gigantic. He tweeted, the regulatory system is broken, and there's simply no way humanity can become a spacefaring civilization without reform. Regulations are immortal. They never die unless somebody actually goes and kills them. Musk also broke rules to make Tesla the 
huge success it is. He supports regulation, he says, but government goes too far. It can overregulate industries to the point where innovation becomes very difficult. The body of regulation for cars could like fill this room. It is both kind of funny but also kind of scary that he doesn't understand regulation. The media missed the point as usual. Musk understands regulations. He just knows he cannot innovate if he obeys all of them. He flaunts his breaking SEC rules, once tweeting, SEC stands for suck Elon's. Elon knows how to mix it up with regulators. I got to hand it to him. Adam Thurer writes about evasive entrepreneurs. So the whole point of this um, session really is about, or his little um, five-minute thing is about regulation. Um, is one component. We have frameworks we all have to work within um, in our businesses and our organizations, whether that is, um, you know, in his case, cars or whatnot. A good example of car challenges is here in Michigan. We live here and I live here in Michigan, which is the car capital of the, of the world. More cars are made here than any other place in the planet. And uh, it has been for many, many time, many years, the car uh, mass production environment of uh, creating those cars was done here in Michigan by Henry Ford. And uh, so um, now we're, you know, 100 plus years past that, and we're still dealing with a lot of the same um, regulations that have guided that industry for many, 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 many hundred years or so. Uh, federal um, state regulations in the United in Michigan, for example, prohibit Tesla from selling cars here in Michigan. So Tesla actually owns a couple companies here in Michigan, actually in our town. They even have a um, service facility and all of that. But you cannot buy a Tesla car in Michigan. Um, you're not allowed to do that. You have to. You can take delivery of a car here in Michigan, but you're not allowed. They're not allowed to set up a store here in Michigan because the state of Michigan has a regulation that favors the manufacturers of cars dealership networks, and so the dealerships uh, and the car dealers made it um, influence the legislature to say you cannot buy a car directly from the manufacturer. So to protect the dealers, they put that in, and so what that's um, you know. If you're familiar with the one of the reasons why Elon Musk's system and why um, their um, solution is less expensive in the market, and they were able to bring out something pretty inexpensive, at least because they've cut out the middleman, so to speak. Nobody sells that car directly. They don't have to have a dealer infrastructure. There's no franchise operations like that. That It doesn't work that way. They build the car and sell it to consumers. Hmm, imagine that. Smart way of doing business. It's very disruptive. And so there. this happens all the time. Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, all of them are trying to glow, grow a global business. And they end up getting confronted time and time again with local regulations that um, basically protect the status quo business models. And so being successful often means you have to, you're coming in and you're disrupting the way business works and you're not doing it in a traditional way. I, um, we're walking through this, walking this out in um, one of the charitable organizations that I work with. We're trying to provide STEM education resources in foreign countries. 
that are underserved. And we're looking at communities that are rural, that don't have all the resources. I just got back from a trip from Africa, from Ghana, Africa specifically, and um, we got a wonderful reception from the children and parents and even the local educators. But as we kind of peel the onion, you find that there is a lot of issues around content delivery uh, and we are being very disruptive to the status quo, the way that teaching occurs in those schools. And uh, so it's it's a bit of a challenge. And so we basically have to walk in, um, <clears throat> of course, uh, giving honor to whom honor is due. But uh, we also have to think about it from that, a different perspective that we're there to serve children and um, help them out of a cycle of poverty um, through education. And a lot of times it is the result of that education system that keeps them from being creative and keeps them from embracing a new way of thinking and uh, new ways of doing things and solving problems. And uh, so it, it becomes a challenge. It becomes a, a very big challenge, actually, for us. Uh, so this is a thing. Um, you know, a lot of times in your model, you have to look at the model and what you're trying to deliver. And uh, basically, this is part of when I say hack, this is what I mean. A hacker, what does a hacker do? A hacker is able to get around firewalls. A computer hacker is able to socially engineer a solution and get what he wants or she wants, which is that kind of payload of, I want to, you know, deface the front end of NASA's website or something like that, right? That's what the old school hackers would do. Now they're in there stealing money and stuff like that, but that's a different story. My definition of hacker is the guy that played war games uh, in that movie or, um, you know, went and did uh, just a little mayhem that um, just showed your technical prowess of getting around systems. And um, so it's like planting a flag in enemy's territory. That's kind of the idea. And so in some ways, that's what's going on. You have to kind of take a little bit of that mindset of what are those barriers? Identify the barriers. Actually, that's not hard to do. Um, and then there's two um, challenge, or there's two ways you can choose to to solve your problem. One is to try to fix the barriers, to try to change those things, and um, or you can figure out ways around those things. And you kind of have to pick your fights. And uh, you know, in some areas, a lot of these guys are picking their fight. Is we're just going to go around it. We're not going to ask permission for stuff. Um, we're going to try to keep a low profile on things. We're going to deliver content and get momentum. And then we're going to deal with the uh, the implications of that. Um, I have been in many, because uh, part of my um, uh, day job is involved in selling uh, technology solutions uh, to companies uh, for services and scheduling. And a lot of them want to adopt an Uber model. That's um, what everybody wants to do. They want to have this kind of... Um, cadre of service workers and employee uh, service workers that deliver services to their customers. And uh, they want to put out things like bid boards and um, treat their uh, folks that deliver services maybe like more like contractors and gig employees and then than actual employees um, and change that relationship between them and their service delivery organization. And it's, a, it's an interesting um, challenge, though, because it's it becomes not a technical challenge it's actually not hard to do that that's actually easy to set up what's hard is all the legal issues that come with that change 
the um, the all of the the reg- regulations and rules that have to do with making that happen are different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I know I have a lot of global listeners on here. One thing to understand about the United States is you not only have the federal government that and the Department of Labor and OSHA, those are um, federal organizations that regulate the workspace that people work in to make sure that things are safe and um, they regulate that. They make rules around um, um, workplace safety, for example, in construction sites. And they also have uh, rules around what defines full-time employees and how taxes are calculated, etc. Then you also have another layer on top of that. In every state, you have 50 states. So it's if you have a little small company and you're only in one state, it's great. I just have to deal with, and I live in the state of Michigan, so I just have the state of Michigan's Department of Labor, and they have an overlapping um, uh, departments, just like the federal government, of workplace safety and um, what that workplace law needs to be. So I not only have to be subject to federal, but I also have state rules and regulations. And then you have another set of regulations um, that your city and local jurisdictions can impose on top of that. And so um, any one of those organizations and, and departments and, and bureaucrats, uh, they uh, they individually will go, well, you know, we, we just have simple requirements. Of course, they do in from their mind, but they don't look at it from the point of view of somebody trying to actually innovate or do something awesome. Um, or run their business uh, because they basically have to deal with um, three to five layers of of regulations and and rules in order to you know provide the service that they're looking to provide. Anyways, I think that's an interesting model. Is that um, and I thought this was very emblematic of what challenges. Uh, we all can admire these awesome companies and we're customers of them. We look at um, Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and all these different companies and kind of our customers are theirs and enjoy that service. But we don't understand often the um, price that it pays, the how much the they have to work in legal fees to be able to provide that service in those different markets. And uh and it's challenging, and it's challenging. So um, that's my advice to you. I agree. Don't ask for permission. Figure out how to get around those things and move quickly and uh, work on your innovation. And it, don't try to, um, you know, change the Department of Labor. Like that's not something you're going to be able to easily do. Uh, and the same thing, we're, we're working in Ghana, and it's the same kind of concept. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of systemic issues. You can either work to fix those systemic issues if you had political power and authority to do so, or you can just go in and do your program and figure out how to get around those that, those bureaucracies and uh, not try to change the inherent political system uh, because you don't have the you don't have the juice or time or really care about that. That doesn't have anything to do with helping us deliver stuff to children. Anyway, so that's that's uh, that's the approach I t- try to take and try to uh, break those hierarchies uh, by just going at decision makers and and uh, delivering value. Isn't that awesome? That's a great idea. All right. Uh, what else is in the stack? Is I usually do three. We'll do three. What else do we got here? Uh, 
All right, all right. All righty, all right. Well, what's the what's the next one? What's the next one that we wanted to talk about? Um, I put a couple articles in there on uh, the stack about Bill Gates. And, uh, of course, you know, I work for uh, the company that Bill Gates founded and started. Actually, it was his second or third company, actually, that he started or founded. But anyways, um, a couple things that I think are very interesting about Bill Gates. And not a lot of people uh, know this about um, Bill Gates um, and uh, the business model that he had, but Bill Gates uh, um, twice a year uh, takes a retreat by himself. And they've done this, he's done this for years. It's referred to as Think Week is the term that he uses for that. And um, those um, of us that uh, are in the tech are probably familiar with this model, definitely um, folks that uh, have worked for Microsoft or have been a follower of Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer actually was also part of this. Um, this was their model. They would uh, take a seven-day uh, think week a couple times a year. They would uh, go in a, um, a cabin or a kind of a place far away, uh, secluded from friends and family and coworkers and stuff like that. So they had a he had a cabin up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they, uh, he just had people, um, he ordered two, two meals a day, had someone come out and uh, eat them. So he didn't have to worry about that. And, uh, basically they would review, um, proposals from employees and business proposals from all different things. And so they came prepared for, um, thinking through big picture items and kind of being, having a reflective, uh, kind of component as a result of that. Um, he created a whole bunch of different papers and um, communicated things internally uh, with his employees and teams and business uh, partners. And uh, so he, uh, for example, uh, wrote the 1995, what's referred to now as the Internet Tidal Wave. Um, in 1995, it wasn't exactly clear what the what was happening with the Internet and how it was going to get commercialized. Um, and so... Um, they were trying to reorient the company basically um, around um, embracing the internet as a, as a core and cloud computing. Well, that's what we have today. And um, so they, um, as a result, a lot of things changed uh, around this. Um, so the benefits, you know, of think weeks are you can get focused on um, without having coworkers or meetings or distractions and the ability to, you know, focus then once you have that, um, you know, increases exponentially because you're just not, um, you're not distracted at all. And so you can really get into a zone. Um, but it does take, uh, does take some mental discipline to do this. Um, if you remove internet access and eliminate one of the biggest sources of distractions in the world, so you know, you're not clicking on YouTube memes in the middle of the night, um, you know, watching, uh, things that, uh, <laughs> that the logarithm's feeding <laughs> your brain on. So yeah, get rid of Instagram and all that. And uh, being in a different environment often actually inspires you to create new ideas. Research has shown that uh, studying in multiple and new locations improve performance. And uh, um, I don't know if you, I don't know how you react to this, but for me personally, I um, there's I I have two opposite ends of a spectrum. One is I really do like to work. Um, in my home office, I've worked at home for over 10 years 
and um, out of my home office. And I do enjoy this a lot because it is free of distractions for, um, you know, um, water cooler talk and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I've created a very comfortable, um, productive space for myself that's oriented around me and uh, nothing else. So I don't have a customer waiting room. I, you know, I have a very comfortable um, location and um, it's very much a nest. And so it allows me to be very focused uh, when I need to be super focused without distraction. So I can literally um, get off a meeting like today. Um, I'll be, I'll have about three hours this afternoon. I'll be able to be totally focused on that. I'll put the appropriate music that I like in the background and I will not have any distractions and I'll be able to have three solid hours of no meetings, no distractions, focus, focus, focus. And what I can do as a result of that is get into this really awesome solution space in my head. And um, a lot of folks in IT, this is a big deal because uh, so much of what you have to do is you it's like building a house of cards you have to start considering all of the implications and you start with different things and you have to hold all the stuff in your mind and you have to feed a little more information and then build something on top of that and you're building out these mental models of dependencies and what if and it's like chess you know you're you're thinking so many moves ahead and you should keep building that stack cards up and then if you get interrupted in the middle of that you have to build that house of cards all over again because that mental model just got erased from your head and you have to start all over again so interruptions for IT people are really tough um, in terms of productivity because so much of it is around thinking first um, IBM's uh, started it um, the guys that started IBM their whole model for their company is think and um, having that kind of quiet reflection and being able to build that model before you take action is really really important um, there's actually another benefit of being surrounded by nature oh before I sit, talk about that the other thing for me that I enjoyed very much um, is being in a space that has a little hustle and bustle. So there's another aspect to that, too, of getting energy from people. And so I I used to work um, uh, when I was in an office many years ago, was in one of the most beautiful hotels in town. This this old, actually, the grand, like a grand plaza kind of hotel, a, a turn of the century um, built in the 1800s, kind of a place. And it was just this gorgeous, beautiful hotel that, that we had a office, uh, in that, uh, complex. And so one of the things that I really loved to do is, uh, take my notepad and book and go just, um, sit in the main lobby of that hotel out in the corner and work, um, on reading and enjoying, um, writing um, during that. And part of it was, uh, wasn't just the atmosphere, was the energy of all the people coming in. Because what you get is all these people coming into a place that they're inspired by. Uh, because it was is this beautiful gold um, um, gilded um, facility. This is a gold ceiling. It's just this beautiful, beautiful place. And so all what you hear all day, all that time when you're in there for a couple hours is people just like, oh, my gosh, this is so beautiful. And you just hear this kind of quiet, like whispery people. And um, it's just is a very positive space. Um, a lot of people like going to a park for similar work. So when you're reading and you want to feel that kind of inspiration, 
um, that's that's positive too. Also, there's a benefit of being in nature, um, choosing locations that are surrounded by nature. There, those are naturally um, healthy too. Research suggests that inhaling forest air provides three major beneficial substances, negative ions, beneficial bacteria, um, even some of the plants and stuff like that. So you get this kind of very positive um, piece. You might even see a little squirrel or something like that. But um, those things actually just naturally um, cause us to um, relax mentally and be more open to the world around us because we are more open to the world around us. When you're in nature, you begin to take in the entirety of the situation. You're not only aware of the potential for danger that's there, but you're also now starting to see the levels of complexity and beauty that exists um, everywhere from the sky to the water to the the birds all the way down to the flora and the fauna. So you kind of start to get this inspiration that of a bigger picture. And we often get so focused on delivering this one thing right now. We lack that kind of broader perspective. And uh, that's the thing that helps. Um, that's That's the idea behind this kind of think week concept is that you're trying to get into this headspace of um, spending time away so you can focus um, and focus on uh, spending time uh, to allow your brain to, to think through this. So uh, that think week is a big thing. And so you may not be able to do think week. You may be able to do, but you can probably start with think day or think hour. Regardless, we need to be able to take some time to allow our brains to think around uh, and creating perspective outside of the immediate needs that we have. And so this is the idea for a lot of companies doing offsite retreats. This is for husbands and wives and couples to kind of go and spend a week away or time together away from a family uh, to kind of renew and refresh the the bigger picture like hey you're a couple you're married yeah you have a family and you have the demands but you know you also just you fell in love together that's the whole <laughs> that's the whole key and it's so easy for us to um, lose the big picture it's so easy for us in the kind of hyper information world um, to to be so focused and I, and I just see this over and over again I see it in my friends on Facebook when they're getting in political arguments with people they don't know on subjects that nobody really understands very well in in the flame wars that happen uh, turning the TV off and the uh, turning that uh, um, stuff off uh, is actually more beneficial than than uh, paying attention to it. Um, I, I, again, I'm a Christian fella, so when I see this happening in in my Christian friends all the time, where they get so detailed in some, you know. Um, specific problem that that that's trying to be addressed and they're trying to see you know the the meta um, issues that are around this this one thing these conspiracy theories um, come up people get so bound up around the theological conversations um, you know people back in the olden days people you know lived and died based on how they viewed you know one scripture um, and be, were martyred over this um, the, because people just focus on the, the teeny tiniest little things. And um, Jesus even gave us this thing. He says, you guys 
are so crazy. You um, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. And he was basically saying, you you are so um, focused on the teeny tiniest things that you, you that you're willing to. Um, uh, give up the big picture. You're willing to give up the big picture. And, and that's, that happens to all of us in all of our jobs. We give up the big picture all the time because we're so focused often on the details and execution as opposed to the big picture. So anyways, I just encourage y'all to take some headspace and think about uh, that for a little time. So with that said, let us move over uh, for a moment to from the stack of stuff over to um, our um, our uh, topic for the day, our customer topic for the day, which is uh, we've been kind of walking through the different ways to improve customer retention. And we um, we talked about the first last time we were together, just as a refresher, we uh, talked about that. So let's uh, let's transition over to that. All right. Ways to improve your customer retention rate. All right. So here you go. Here's ways to improve your uh, customer retention rate. We are going to discuss um, this uh, this topic. I, I did put a little, uh, there's a link to this on the stack of stuff um, and to, to form our uh, kind of conversation. So, um, you know, uh, we talked about one, mapping out all the customer touch points, really understanding that end-to-end customer map, the customer journey from the first time that a customer becomes aware of your product all the way to the point that they are going to buy it again and renew that um, relationship with you. You need to understand this entire end-to-end customer journey and uh, look at areas where it's redundant and where it doesn't work. And customer journey mapping has been something I used to do for many years in my consulting practice. And so today, this is a mainstream common practice. A lot of applications actually work to manage this. A company like Adobe actually, believe it or not, is one of the leaders in this customer journey mapping. Um, But what you're going to find is um, very quickly is that the customer knows the relationship better than you do. Um, so what am I saying? What am I saying? So let's look at the um, building, um, getting a mortgage from a bank. That's one of the best ways to think about this. So I'm thinking, all right, I want to get refinance my my home. And uh, so I could A, go to my current bank, or I, maybe I'm going to go out and do some research before. Um, uh, I recently did this. I recently did this. And so you go out and you um, start doing some internet research on recalculating your mortgage and refinancing and blah, blah, blah. And then you get confronted with all these choices and all these different providers. And you get lots of follow-ups and lots of people that are taking care of your leads. In the meanwhile, I haven't talked to my current bank yet. I haven't looked at them yet. And if they showed up in those searches, that might redirect me back to the bank. But guess what? The bank I worked with did not, they didn't show up on any of this stuff. They weren't aggressively marketing refinancing. And so uh, all of the aggressive marketers, you know, got all my attention. And uh, ultimately, I did refinance with my bank. I went back to my bank and refinanced with them ultimately. 
But <clears throat> they were unaware of all of this other research that I had done. When I walked in the door and talked to them, I knew already what I wanted to negotiate with them in terms of my my interest rate and terms and whatnot that <clears throat> that I wanted to have. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so uh, that's how it works. Um, if you don't understand that journey, um, they were out a little. Um, they were at a disadvantage uh, because they don't understand that relationship end to end. And in a lot of organizations, banking, again, I always come back to banking because it's, it's one of those uh, great um, experiences that we all share in common. So we all know our bank, right? We all know um, walking in and talking to the teller how important that uh, relationship is with, with the bank teller is she or he pulls money out of your account and gives it to you across the counter or performs a writing a check, a cashier's check or something like that, something that they need. And, and understanding that entire relationship, you know, you get it better than often they do. So anyways, as they're saying, you want to match map out all those customer touch points. Um, so what is, uh, what is, okay, we're on, so we're down the list now. Uh, and so number four for us is set up a streamlined follow-up system. You know, so that is a really great advice. Um, setting up a, a follow-up system once a purchase is made, you want to check for their satisfaction. That is seems like a very simple idea, but for a lot of companies, it is not well understood. They don't follow up um, with this or it's um, so um, anonymous or let's say not well understood uh, in terms of how to deliver it, they just go out and buy a survey st- software and push the magic button. And then, you know, the customer gets inundated with um, surveys and they don't become effective. And uh, because the response rate is, is can be re- really low. So this is setting up a follow-up system that really allows you to uh, build not only a relationship over time with a customer, uh, it also helps you understand their sentiment towards you uh, over time and what are the things that, again, if we have this customer journey map, once the sale is done, you're not done with the customer. You need to rep them to refer you back or to buy again often. So there's a loyalty kind of issue here. And so um, loyalty is really important here. So it's not just are they happy, but are they loyal? And measuring loyalty in that kind of post-sale situation is really, really best. So um, having your brand that uh, is part of that, uh, touch points with the customers, including even random gifts that let customers know that you appreciate them. Um, They get something that they weren't expecting. Uh, They're more impressed and so that is a way um, some companies are doing this you know um, just refrigerator magnets uh, the the guys uh, and gals in insurance are, are always great at this kind of stuff uh, because a lot of old school insurance people knew their customers. They were local. They knew them in the community. And so having that kind of follow up and the calendar that we had in our house was from our insurance guy. And, uh, you know, just little things often can be very helpful. And it just is that brand reinforcement um, sitting on your on your door every day you walk out or on the refrigerator because you have a annual calendar, a little calendar magnet that shows up. It's got your little logo there. Some of those things actually are really good at reinforcing your brand and showing that you're trustworthy and that you're part of their family. 
So it's really a key is to make a genuine effort to understand the customer's experience rather than just a generic rating or a survey. We're moving to a place right now uh, in analytics and AI where AI actually does a really good job in actually predicting customer satisfaction based on lots of data. And um, so you can, you know, look at systems like that. But if you're, a, let's say, a small business, um, it's really just the sincerity that comes through understanding your customer's experience. I see it all the time because I love to use go on Google and give um, reviews and stuff like that to restaurants. And you can see places that get bad reviews where the company tries to and the, the, the business owner is back in there. We're sorry that your experience was bad. We'll do better next time. As opposed to arguing with the customer or saying, well, you're an idiot. You're really making a genuine effort to understand. And people love that kind of stuff. They love the sincerity. They don't mind that you screw up from time to time. Stuff happens, but it's how do you respond to it that really makes endears your customers to you. So, and um, that what goes along with that is helping your existing customers. So one of the things um, that that the software industry figured out a long time ago and is continuing to go as we as that industries are moving from, hey, buy this software and then you buy it and then we're done because uh, you installed it and we're done. We're going to a, a, um, a subscription based model. So you have customers that uh, that are basically, um, you know, you're on the hook to continue to deliver value over the whole time of that subscription, not just now not just a one-time thing. And it's changed the way that a lot of companies are working. So you want to be able to create content to help existing customers. So a lot of marketing focuses on all of the problems of a customer that doesn't have your product. But customers still have the same problems often after they own your product. And or or new problems come up. And helping them solve new problems using your tools you know, having content that helps them use what you offer in a new way um, that can really advance your relationship with your customer towards uh, away from just making you a um, a product and much more a ongoing uh, integrated experience for them uh, and allowing your customer to use your product even more deeper, which makes it much more difficult for them to leave you. Uh, if you're the more you're integrated into their everyday life, the harder it is for them to kick you out of the the store. We call it the cost of divorce. Like the cost of divorce, some families stay together because the cost of divorce is too high. And so um, I've heard this by many customers. They want to make the cost of divorce very high. And the way that you do that is by ensuring that your customer not only purchases your software or hardware or whatever you're selling at the beginning, but ends to create um, and help them while they're an existing customer. And uh, the last one uh, today that I wanted to um, uh, to uh, do is talk about a referral program. So referral programs are excellent for improving a customer's retention rate uh, because what it does with a referral program, your customers are rewarded for introducing new customers to your brands. Rewards can be anything as discounts, vouchers, free products or services or even cash. Now, if a customer is motivated to take part in your referral program, 
they usually stay loyal to the brand, especially if your referral program helps them unlock VIP services, um, priority support. Um, they become brand ambassadors. We see this all the time, with especially millennials on Instagram. They love to become brand ambassadors. So brand ambassadors get a special discount and on the, the cool shoes or watches or whatever. They get a huge discount and uh, they get referral codes to send it back to you. And so identify influencers in your customer base and incent them to refer people back to you and those become your most loyal folks. Um, Dropbox, for example, rewards additional users with additional space for every new user they refer to the platform. A user will need to return to Dropbox to make use of that space. So it's an excellent example of using a referral program to get your customers to keep on returning to your brand so you reduce churn. And so churn, again, this is what we're fighting, is we're fighting against customers that you won and are using your product and may be very happy, but are enticed to go to another platform and ultimately drop your product. And so this is what we're trying to kind of combat against. We want to retain customers, not just acquire. We want to acquire and retain our customers through doing great service work. And having a great product, of course, you got to do all that. But now you got to do some other stuff after the sale is done. So, anyways, well, I hope I hope you have a great day. It is time to time to wrap it up. It's time to wrap it up. I hope you have an awesome week, uh, and we will talk to you later. <laughs>